We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hello and welcome to the second part of our three-headed mashup involving Pete, Ned and David doing different things in the special edition of Never Stray's Far that frankly, editorially, doesn't really hang together. If you're confused, let this be a guide. Ned is about to get a guided tour round Paris with his friend Rob, who knows a lot about Jimi Hendrix and Napoleon. David is into day two of his commentator's seminar at the UCI headquarters in Aigle and is about to bump into Jens Vogt, among other people, and Pete, well, Pete is preparing to run five kilometres very, very fast indeed. Let's join him then. It's early morning on the Isle of Man. Morning, campers. Morning. 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 So today's the day the five kilometer running race that I set myself as a little mini mini goal to keep me motivated through the cold January months it's finally arrived it's now 44 minutes past five woke up at five no idea how it took me over 40 minutes to make and consume plain rice and an omelette but it did no so I was trying to wake up I'm gonna make another coffee let my food digest and then yeah start to get my things together everyone in the house i was still asleep all the kids so it's lovely and peaceful and quiet might start doing this more often the sound of Paris. Well, it's a cup of tea being poured, actually. It's not the sound of Paris. Paris has many sounds. That's one of them. There's a bit of hoovering going on in the background as well, which is another one of the Paris sounds. And to my left, one of the other Paris sounds, as I've discovered in the last 20 minutes, is my mate Rob, who's who I introduced you to in the last podcast, if you listened, when I was talking to David, and David said, I'm going to go to Switzerland for the thing that I said I would be in Switzerland with him doing the commentator's course. Um, but I'm not. I'm in Paris with Rob and Rob's just been telling me about the sad demise of Orange Deluxe how it all came to an end Rob yeah who were Orange Deluxe um, yeah we was a, a band a four piece band uh, formed out of the ashes of 5.30 uh, my brother Paul and uh, then he got me on bass and Keith on the drums and Cope who used to be a cameraman TV cameraman for uh, the Hitman and Her um, yeah and uh, yeah he turned up a rehearsal um, and then we all went out and got paralytic drunk and then we liked him so he joined so yeah, that was how we got together talking early 90s here um, and then Rob 
this is like the, the fag end of Rob's career as Reading's. I did. I was gave you a slight disservice. I called you Reading's third choice goalkeeper, which is only partly true, isn't it? But, no? Well, yeah, I started off as a second choice and then got worse. So, <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the online poll that you recently found at the Reading place. Oh yeah, I saw. I found an online poll about Reading's worst ever goalkeeper, and uh, I was disappointed to see that I wasn't top of that list because Gary Westwood was uh, top of that list as listed as Reading's worst ever goalkeeper. Which Gary, uh, if you're out there, I think is very unfair. Uh, <laughs> I thought he was actually quite good. You may be a listener. Yeah, maybe you never know. And I was. Uh, second choice behind Gary and uh, well I couldn't get him out of the team I wasn't good enough so that makes me Reddin's worst ever goalkeeper as far as I'm concerned Excellent. throw my hat in the ring there yeah, yeah. the other bit of biographical details that I managed to um, elicit in the last podcast just introducing you when David was saying who's Rob mm-hmm. uh, I, said, I said two things about you one is you are um, probably one of the world's leading Napoleon experts and you don't even have to comment on that. I'm just saying, I'm declaring you as one of, genuinely one of, yeah. the, you know so much about Napoleon. And a lot of that will come on to talk, to talk about because we're here in Paris. And that's why we're here in Paris. And the other thing I said is that you literally only wear Jimi Hendrix t-shirts. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah. I do only wear Jimi Hendrix t-shirts. Today, Although, uh, today you're wearing a uh, Jimi Hendrix t-shirt. Jimmy's just there. He's got like um, sort of yellow trousers, as if he's had an incident. Um, and he's got like a he's purple, appropriately enough, from the waist up, with his guitar picked out in purple. And a monitor, monitor on a stool. Yeah, from classic. The Gypsies uh, concerts on uh, the first of February, first of January, nineteen seventy, uh, yeah. uh, which they recorded and. Yes, uh, four shows over two nights. So this kind of fact you're here for at this podcast. Um, but we're here in Paris. We're, we're, still, we're here at the famous Hotel Alisson. We've just been, I think, warmly greeted by Laure, who runs this place. Very nice. Yeah, and um, as soon as we checked in, she said, I'll bring you a cup of tea. She said, à l'anglaise. So we've got a cup of tea and um, a little bit of milk. And then we're, we're popping off as soon as we've necked this to go. And I've split my trousers, which is unfortunate. Especially with bright underwear, yeah. <laughs> I've got a rip in the backside of my jeans, but I can't, we haven't quite got time and I haven't quite got the motivation to go and buy a new pair of jeans. Like doing another rip on the other side and just making it look like a thing. It might know, be, yeah. You know, just yeah. like lots of different places and that could work. It could. Mm-hmm. We're in the heart of kind of like fashionable Paris as well, so like yeah. I don't really rate my chances of finding a cheap pair of jeans here. So we're just going to toot off and hope no one notices. And we're going off, we've just visited in the, the Madeleine which I've often been inside, but I'd never noticed before. Mm. Mr. Napoleon. Mr. Napoleon's up on the ceiling in there, yes. Celebrating what and why? Oh, the uh, Concordat with the Pope in 1802, I think. 1802, even I know that, Rob. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, where, uh, yeah, he tried to, the revolution had kind of split all ties with the church, and uh, one of the ways Napoleon got the French people on side was to re- reunify that that relationship with Rome yeah with Rome at least for a while anyway it all went horribly wrong later to kidnap the Pope later on but yeah 
in the beginning it worked for him yeah. and then we're, we're going we're to go off in the drizzle and we're going to walk past the Place de la Concorde we're going to actually pass I'll tell you about this when we get there we're going to pass the absolutely critical series of left sweeping left-handed and right-handed yeah. corners yeah. that leads to the final few hundred metres of the Tour de France oh, okay. every year that's right. where it finishes oh, yeah. yeah right outside the Hotel Crillon on the Place de la Concorde we're going to walk past that past the um, obelisk in the middle of the yeah. Place de la Concorde we're going to walk over the bridge um, past the Assemblée Nationale and behind that we're going to Les Invalides uh, where we have booked um, from three o'clock onwards to go and see the Musée de l'Armée and um, Napoleon's tomb. That's the plan. So uh, here we are at the Place de la Concorde, just around the corner from the hotel. It's um, the weather, I have to say, beginning of February is filthy as you'd expect so no big surprise there but um here Rob we have to put a bit of cycling content yeah. in this podcast okay. right Why not? so the race yeah they, they go around this loop around here okay. that, that they come along so there's the Louvre and the Jardin des Tuileries right. and behind that the Louvre right. yeah, yeah I'm pointing away to the left here for the benefit of our audio subscribers um, and to my right ahead of us is the, the obelisk in the middle of the Place de la Concorde yeah. and then you can see the Eiffel Tower the other side of the river oh, yeah. in the, and then heading up where that line of trees are is the beginning of the Champs-Elysees okay. and they come rattling along outside they pass through there's a little tunnel underneath the Jardin de Tuileries they come towards us down the, down the Rue de Rivoli here uh-huh. thundering along here past this line of traffic which has to it's not there on race day um, and then see past that very ornate lamp yeah. they come around that that's a sweeping left handed then they have a right handed turn onto the Champs Elysees and then they sprint for the line wow. like that yeah. okay yeah. That's, how fast are they going when they come up very here? fast Rob very fast yeah so that road there the Rue de Rivoli the Rue de Rivoli yeah that's named after Napoleon's victory over the Austrians at Rivoli in 1797 1797 1797 so that's really early on in Napoleon's story yeah very early yeah. That's before when he was he's declared Northern, himself emperor yeah he's, he's just fighting as a general for the directory in northern Italy at the time he's uh, fighting the Austrians you explain this to me so he, like the French have got Genoa north they've got the Ligurian yeah, coast yeah they go through the Alps he, well his plan there was he, he was between the, the, the Ligurian Alps and the sea so he's in that little stretch he goes but, over the mountains another cycling connection here yeah. that is the final 80 kilometers of Milan San Remo every year. They come from Milan, they pass over the range of mountains that you're yeah. talking about, yeah. they drop down onto the coast and then they head north to San Remo. Okay. One of the most iconic bike races of the, of the year. But anyway, that's... Wow, well, nice. Napoleon yeah. went the other way from, uh, from yeah. the coast, over the mountains, uh, fought the Piedmontese uh, at Mondovi, uh, beat them, uh, divided them from the Austrians, who were their allies. So beat first the Piedmontese, made a, a treaty with them, then turned east, and fought the Austrians and drove them all the way back across uh, northern Italy as far as Mantua and then he had to besiege that place uh, and he was there for a while and each Austrian attempt to to come down and capture it uh, to, to, to re- relieve it uh, he was able to fight off one after another and one of the times he beat them decisively was at Rivoli and that's what that road is named after Rivoli. so piled everyone into the car on the way to the race, our eldest is currently thrown up at home, so he's not coming. Um, yeah, I've been for a little bit of a poo, but I can feel another one brewing, which isn't ideal. Apart from that, all good and ready to go. Uh, this used to be my local commute to work when I was a cyclist to meet the club run at the NSC and where the 5k race is. 
It's actually where I grew up racing my bike on a 800 meter concrete. It's not a track like a velodrome, it's just like a circuit. So bring back some good memories. Slightly apprehensive about the race. Haven't done anything for two days, so I have no idea how the legs are going to feel. But I've got all the kids to support me, haven't I, guys? No. <laughs> no. no. Oh. Albert. Albert. <laughs> and a yes no from Alba. Will you remember me tomorrow? Yeah. Will you remember me in a week? Yeah, you're my son. Will you remember me in a month? Yeah. Will you remember me in a year? Definitely. <laughs> I'll always remember your Axel. <laughs> Who's there? Daddy, <laughs> <laughs> don't remember. Oh, that's enough fart noises, guys. Please. Alba. That's enough. Welcome to the, to the VAR system. So here is the truck where we have the commissaire VAR. He's here to support the commissaire panel with, uh, uh, who is in, um, in the race. So we have two trucks. This one, which is a new one, built uh, last year and uh, the other one. So the system has been introduced in 2018. Uh, initially it was uh, only to cover the three Grand Tours and the five monuments. And then uh, it has been uh, very appreciated for the commissaires <coughs> and even for the teams uh, with, with this tool. So we have developed a little bit this tool with more races, more races, and uh, we decided to create this uh, new truck uh, and uh, now we are able to cover around uh, 60 races per year, which is around 230 uh, days during the season. So, please come in. You will see. Uh, Going into the VAR truck now. You can, you can see it if you wish, if you want to try. Yes. It's possible. <laughs> I'm now in a small white transit van. So the commissaire is sitting here during the race, and thanks to the system, he can see everything that the, the TV producer can see. Okay. Okay. So um, he has the same images. Uh -huh. Here he can see all the images available during the race, and here he can control uh, the the images. So motors, yeah. different motor, yeah. Exactly. So you have the race in live here. So the um, the images are from the Lombardia from last year, mm -hmm. the last uh, the last race of the of the year, and they can follow the course like this in live. Okay, and if they decide to select, I don't know, the motor number two yeah. and the motor number four. They can see here. Normally, they they can walk with uh, they walk with with four screen. Yeah. Uh, they like walking like this. Yeah. Okay. And uh, they can decide to stop because we see something. They can do to rewind. They can uh, zoom as well. Okay. That's pretty cool. That's that little white van that often sits next to 
as in commentary it's like literally like a ice cream van and uh, inside it the VAR commissaire has uh, access to everything that's being shot and so he's got all the motorbike cameras like helicopter cameras everything and then can pick which one he wants to see if he wants to go back so yeah it's pretty cool to be honest with you different way to watch bike race that's for sure so there you go that's the VAR truck <laughs> nearly finished here it's been uh, quite a long two days if I'm honest but a lot of learning gonna try and get Jens on our walk to lunch so we're just approaching St Ninian's High School which was um, yeah my secondary school which is about 200 meters um, after the start of the TT races I'm gonna jump out of the cart and yeah, it's roughly a K and a half to where the, the 5K race starts. So, and it's all pretty much downhill. So it'll act as a nice warm up. Uh, for the record, I actually tweeted it a couple of weeks ago that I'm gonna try and do 3.30 per K pace. Um, go for that and if I blow up in the last K then so be it. I've been able to do it in training for 3K. So it's just about adding that extra 2k on at the end. Right, starting to get serious now. Just under a 3k warm up done. There's some uh, there's some local fast boys that have came out to play today. So it's going to be so important for me to not try and stay with them in the first 2k. Otherwise, I'll just burn all my hopes of doing any decent time. Because I'm not fit enough, in the, like nowhere near fit enough to do what sort of pace they'll be doing. They'll be doing like low 15s probably. Um, just uh, finished my warm up with at Starbucks. Dropped the kids off for the last time. Now I'm back at the car. I'm gonna pin the number on. Head over to the track, do a few accelerations, and uh, yeah, get in the zone, baby. Right, that's warm up officially. Uh, that's warm up officially done. You know what? These local local events are just brilliant, aren't they? Everyone's gathering around the the coffee van. Father-in-law's also in the same race, Rob Young. He's going to He's going to beat me apparently. Old friends, new friends. It's a glorious sunny winter's day on the Isle of Man. And yeah, what else would you want to be doing on a Saturday? So I'm not making excuses, but I have got a bit of a chronic Emmy, stop hitting the microphone. Um, glute injury going on. So I can feel it a little bit, but hopefully I'll be able to get through the run with no problems. What, Emerson, yeah? You alright? It is recording, look. It's just hiding. You'll probably do better than me, Axel. It is. It's in there. Stop tapping it. That's because you haven't got headphones on. Yeah, I know, but... I don't need to hear my own voice, do I? You know, wish Daddy good luck. No! My kids are delightful. That hotel there, I think it's the most expensive hotel yeah. in Paris, or one of them, the Hotel Crillon. Armstrong, when he when he won in inverted commas, seven tours to France in no, a row. Didn't he cheat? Armstrong? Yeah. Oh, yes! Oh, Robbie did, yeah, yeah, yeah. did cheat. Uh, I think he's the only 
well, he's not obviously not, not the, the only, only one, one is no, he? No, no, no. Um, but he used to stay. He used to book out the penthouse there, okay, yeah. and all his friends and family, his entourage, would yeah. like stand there, hang a big Texan flag, an American flag, at the front. Did he use a dodgy credit card? I mean, obviously that would be in keeping. Do you know what happened to him, by the way? He no. lost a lot of money when it all collapsed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but he made it like he lost hundreds of millions, okay. tens, certainly tens of millions. Yeah. But he made a lot of it back yeah. because he really really early on in the story some friend of his or some business associate of his told him to invest in a startup company right. and I think he invested something like $100,000 right. in the startup company for a large amount of shares and what was it called? Uber <laughs> oh wow <laughs> he, just just a win, he just wins whichever whatever way he, turns, he yeah, wins yeah. if you're fl- fl- flicking a coin with Lance Armstrong it'll turn up his side yeah. basically uh, every time so in the distance there we can see now we've, we've, nah, we'll be right. we're stepping out that's all right, it's a little green man. So we're stepping out now. To the right, there's the Elysee Palace. Uh, there's the beginning of the Champs-Elysees, you can see. And then, um, and then in the distance, that's where we're heading. We need yeah. to get a bit of a clip on, really, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Let's go this way. Let's try this way. Hey, Jens, how are you doing? So far, so good. Enjoying the trip to the UCI. Learned a few new things. I know, so did I. What did you think of the VAR truck? Don't do it, Jens. It's a rival podcast. (laughs) Thanks, Lloydie. That's just former pro cyclists being dicks. Yeah. Uh, What do you think of the VAR truck? Um, I think it's a good idea. Helps the commissaires to make a more precise decision because they can, you know, move it slow motion, fast motion, roll it backwards so they can see exactly what happens on the track or can verify a decision. So I think it gives more credibility to the decisions made. What's been the best bit so far? We're just about to walk into the uh, x-ray machine for mechanical cheating. But apart that, what's been good? Um, lots of informations, and um, I like walking past these boxes where the riders here have their bikes. So there's countries like Suriname, you know, like Afghanistan. So it's great to see how they support the people less fortunate, you know, that they give these kids a chance to ride and maybe fulfill the dream of becoming an Olympian one day. It's amazing. All right, we're starting this next presentation. I'm off. Um, okay, so we made it across the river and we've arrived at the, the Les Invalides and the first port of call before we actually go into the uh, Museum of the Army is to see Napoleon's tomb, which I've, I've, I and Rob, actually, both of us have been here before a long, long, long time ago. And it's, a, it's every bit as gobsmacking as I remember it. Built... So he died in 18 1821, yeah. and it was built some 20 years later or something like that. Or yeah, 1840. Yeah. They bought him, tried to bring him back yeah. uh, under was it Louis Philippe who bought him back, and then he was buried here. Yeah. So chap who finished off the Madeleine Church, in fact. Possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So just to sort of like describe it, it's this enormous casket made out of this dark brown marble and it stands on a plinth made of some grey marble and that in turn and it must be like what's that 20 foot high something like that and it's and around it is a great big inlaid laurel wreath in this circular um, kind of setting with these these angels standing around it and and towering above it is that huge golden dome that you can see from miles away 
into the ground. You see the names of the victories in the ground here? Pyramids, Varengo, Auslitz, can't see, probably Jenna. So beginning with F. Jena, Friedland, Friedland, and then probably Wagram on the other side. Oh, Jena. There's one, yeah, Jena. Jena. Yeah, that was 1806 when he beat the Prussians. Yeah. So it's all these different... All these main what was Marenko? What was that? Marengo. Marengo. Well, yeah, Marengo was in Italy um, just after he came over the Alps in 1800, around the back of the Austrians. And uh, when they tried to escape back eastwards and fought them at Marengo, um, got away with it, really. Um, and... Uh, he, Got away with a, a victory at first he lost and he was driven back two miles and then Desai who had marched off with the division came back to support him and uh, with that division they counter-attacked and uh, dis- destroyed the Austrians and uh, the next day they sued for, for an armistice and, uh, and this was all building his reputation yeah. that kind of propelled him eventually to power yeah, through he, the coup and he was, he was already the cons- first consul at that point yeah. um, but uh, he was trying to get peace with Austria. They'd been at war with Austria for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was one of the ways. They had an armistice for a short while. They tried to make peace, but peace didn't come out of that. It was later on when uh, Moreau beat the Austrians again at Hohenlinden in December of 1800 that they, they then made peace. But interestingly, after the Battle of Marengo, you get, uh, he got his dinner was made, and that's where you get chicken Marengo comes from. <laughs> I know, <laughs> where his chef could only find a crayfish and a dodgy chicken and some eggs and concocted some food out of it and that's where chicken merengue comes from that's why it's called chicken merengue and I didn't I didn't get my trousers repaired unlike Jimi Hendrix yes Jimi yeah he did Paris was this in Paris no No, it's in the Isle of Wight yeah the Isle of Wight in 1970 he's doing Foxy Lady he's done his splits thing with the guitar and uh, split his trousers at the beginning and so he said to go back behind the amplifiers still trying to play and say if I split my trousers they're like yeah you have he's gone back played to second verse and Noel Redding who was had stopped being his bass player but his mum had come to this show because <laughs> uh, she lived in Folkestone and um, she was back, back around the back and she sewed up his trousers and during the song he walked back around behind the amplifiers and uh, just let the guitar feed back and played some noodly Still notes. this crazy playing, yeah. yeah, crazy noise. And then had his trousers sewn up, then went back out and finished the song. Oh, Took in the song, that song is about eight minutes long because about four minutes of him, he's having his trousers sewn up. So that's the kind of equivalent of like if your mum had come to Paris here, yeah. I'm standing here with some ripped trousers, Only. basically riffing yeah. in this pod, yeah. but she'd be like crouched down in Napoleon's tomb, yeah. sewing up, up my trousers. Which yeah. is a quite startling, uh, startling image to be honest, because uh, my mum's quite old now, so it's difficult for her to get back up. <laughs> So we've just concluded the UCI commentator seminar and I'm sitting with Peter van der Nabil, the UCI sports director. Peter, can you give us a bit of background and the motivation behind this? Well, uh, the first priority for us is to share our experiences, okay? So, and also, well, TV commentators have an extremely important role uh, in cycling. Right? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's true. It's, it's about the storytelling and also it's, that there's nothing more annoying than when something is being told which is not correct, for instance. That's what we also try to do and to be transparent, to give you all the feedback from A to Z. How is the 
the VAR system working? How is the testing related to technological fraud working? How is, how, in general, the rules working as well? So as le at least you have that feedback. So then you can start on a very good uh, step, uh, start block, let's say. Yeah? yeah, I mean, it does feel, obviously, I've been in the sport for so long. It does, the UCI feels very different now to what it was even relatively recently, especially the image of it. I mean, have, has that been a conscious effort from the ECI to really open up a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this has been a change uh, of the years, uh, year after year as well. And, and every president had a different... Well, a different mindset, but also a stronger mindset, uh, president after president, and times evolve, evolve as well. So, uh, yeah, I am I am here since uh, oof, uh, 20 years now, so I witnessed quite a lot of uh, changes, yeah, and, and it becomes always more professional, uh, even the sport, uh, the, the sport itself as well, but also for us as the administrators, uh, for the commissaires as well, uh, there's nothing compared being a commissaire maybe only six years ago compared to now because they have way more responsibilities as well. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. And what is your, how do you see the situation, we're talking about road cycling, mm -hmm. and the situation of road cycling at the moment with everything that's going on, because it seems UCI continues to progress, but we continue to have these splinters and different things going on. Well, I think that's, that's yeah, that's the difficult part of it, because, well, maybe it's also a utopia as well, that suddenly you would have all the people having the same mindset, because, well... Yeah, that's that. That's already that's already difficult, you know. Eh? On on the other hand, while I can compare with other disciplines, eh, I think there's a way forward for cycling, definitely for road cycling as well. On the other hand, well, yeah, it is so delicate. You have so many stakeholders involved, and it's good. The relations with all stakeholders now are extremely good, eh? and that also. You know, it started during the COVID-19 pandemic because before there were still frictions and, and there will always be frictions. We don't have to be blunt. But, you know, during COVID-19, everybody realized from, wow, our sport is on hold. So what what do we need to do? So there also we had, we well, we, we have a very alert and attentive president who said, okay, but we need to be ready. So Peter, uh, we have to be ready. So we installed kind of... Uh, well, conference calls, uh, video calls with the stakeholders. And that's how we started to recreate confidence and trust in between the stakeholders to relaunch the calendar, which was completely, well, out of the box uh, because Tour of Flanders, uh, Paris-Roubaix, they were suddenly uh, later in the year. So, but we all did it together. And that was a good stepping stone to, to where we are now in the discussions as well, because everybody sees a brighter future of road cycling in the future. On the other hand, you have, through the stakeholders, you have different right holders as well. And that makes it complicated. And that's something where we have to get through. But to give another example, with mountain bike or cyclocross, we have contracts with parties for the World Cup because we have the exclusive rights of the UCI Mountain Bike or Cyclocross World Cup which we can transfer, sell, uh, share uh, which is in road cycling not the case on, and that is that is a very delicate matter of course yeah? Well thank you very much Peter uh, now to lunch I've learned a lot it's yeah. been a good couple of days cool. alright thanks so we just stepped a few yards to the side in one of these side chapels in this enormous church 
contains, well, there are sarcophagus, there are tombs to all sorts of important people, including, here's a Tour de France connection, actually, Vauban, who is fortress, famous for designing and building massive fortresses, star kind of star-shaped ones, and Belfort. So one of the things that the Tour de France does every single year is go close to Belfort, to the big fort there, and, and other ones in the Alps, and, and in the Jura mountain range, I think. And um, invariably, every single year, you will see one or other of the Vauban fortifications in the Tour de France. It's just a kind of annual touchstone. Yeah. And we've come here to much more modern sarcophagus, and this is the sarcophagus of Marshal Foch, who, of course, was the um, commander of the French uh, army when uh, Germany un- Germany surrendered in 1918, on the 11th of no- the 11th in 1918, and they met in that railway carriage outside Compiègne, which, of course, you will know, Rob, is the start of the famous one-day cobbled race Paris-Roubaix which happens every year actually it doesn't start in Paris it starts in Compiègne it finishes right. in Paris it finishes in Roubaix yeah. are you concentrating no I wasn't paying attention I was looking at this amazing freeze on this sarcophagus um, Marshal Foch actually and I wrote about it in 1923 a little bit because um, when I was writing 1923 I kind of I looked forward to the end of the race I, obviously the film in my book 1923 relates to stage uh, four of the 1923 Tour de France but when the race a couple of weeks later eventually reached Paris and Henri Pellissier was declared the winner there is a reel of Pathé film that's very um, it jumps around it's not just about the Tour de France it's the news of the day and it has kind of 30 seconds of rather wobbly shots of Henri Pellissier being given his laurel wreath and his um, honours at the uh, Parc des Princes where the race ended in Paris and then it cuts to another event that happened that day and it happened just north of Paris in Villers-Cotterêts, um, where Prime Minister Poincaré, who's this bellicose Prime Minister, who basically ordered the French and the Belgian forces to occupy the Ruhr Valley, which led to German hyperinflation, which led to Hitler, which led to the Second World War, and set in train that whole... This is a really significant year, 1923. But Poincaré and Marshal Foch are unveiling a... Um, on the on the day the 1923 Tour de France finishes, they're unveiling a war memorial in Villers-Cotterêts, which is that actually historically, in many people's eyes, the home of the, the ordinance of Villers Cotterêts in God knows when. I think it was the 12th century was in many people's eyes the birth of the French nation, and it and it it actually um, ordained the change from Latin being the official language of the, the French to French. Wow. So that's kind of where it all begins. And Foch himself um, was too young to fight just in the. Although no, you know he. I, he, he was enlisted but didn't actually fight I think in the Franco-Prussian War um, and he was quite, quite an old guy by the time um, the First World War actually came around but, and apparently he walked into the he walked into the, the carriage to the surrendering German generals who'd been ordered there and kept them waiting for an hour or two and then walked in and went didn't refuse to speak and they all stared at him thinking what's all this about and then his first words were what do you think you're doing here? Yeah. Surrendering hopefully I had a few teachers like that at schools yeah. What, what do you think you're doing? Yeah, I had a teacher like that, but Robert Lamplow took the door off, and uh, when he came, he took the door off and put it back in the in the frame, and then when he came in, he opened the door, it fell on the floor. And it was a lot of what do you think you're doing that day. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. 
powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hello, so while Pete prepares to rip up his 5K running race, and David continues to chain himself to the altar of exercise, I'm going about trying to stay fit, healthy, and happy in my own slightly more low-key way. Often this involves cycling across London to go to meetings or to see relatives and friends. But just as often, it means going for an hour's run. Well, jog, let's be honest, as I did four times in Madrid, just to keep lively and alert. It's a big part of my life. And a massive part of my morning ritual, even when I'm on the move, is AG1. I always make sure I'm travelling with enough packs to last the trip because drinking the blend of whole food nutrients has become part of my day over the last few years. To be honest, I can feel a little bit lost if I forget them. In one glassful of AG1, there's just about the whole deal. Each and every aspect of staying healthy and well, given a helping hand by the combination of ingredients sourced and balanced to help with focus, energy, immune protection and healthy ageing. Something requiring a bit more urgent attention for me than for the other two. It's simple, effortless, just mix in water and gobble it down. Once a day, every day, that's it. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash never strays far. That's drinkag1.com forward slash never strays far. Check it out. Well, that's it. Two days concluded at the ECI commentator seminar the inaugural uh i have taken copious notes for my colleagues ned bolton and pete kenya and uh i've now got the ability to fill lots of dead time on air with uh really geeky stuff um about var about mechanical uh cheating about the technical regulations um about the UCI calendar um, and lots of other things that right now I can't think of. But anyway, it's been good. Glad I came. And uh, that's me, David Miller, out. Well, we finally exited the museum. Standing outside these at Anvalide now is the Paris sky which has been drizzling off and on just uh, the clouds are beginning to draw apart it's, temperatures dropped a bit and the sun's beginning to go down so it's got that kind of inky blue sort of texture to it at the moment and the lights have just come on in the Anvalide and the golden dome is lit up and to our right the Eiffel Tower which is all illuminated the searchlight has literally just come on at six o'clock in the evening in February and it's really quite stunning and we've been essentially kicked out of the museum and we must have done about a third of it if that, what? do you reckon? About a third of the museum? Oh, well, we did the Napoleonic bit, but we didn't yeah, do... we had to rush it towards yeah, the end. we did, yeah. We had to invade... We lingering over... We had to invade Russia, uh, come back, reform an entire army, beat the Prussians and Russians at lots and bouts and fight our way almost to the Oda, get defeated at Leipzig, retreat back to France, 
fight the Allies as they invaded Champagne, get <laughs> abdicate, go to Elba, come back from Elba, oh, fight now, really I quickly. I want to pick you up on that because there was oh, yeah. a Tour de France link to that. Okay. A few years ago, I was commentating on the Tour de France, really and um, the a, a stage started near Antibes okay. and went due north along a very straight line, and it was like the the Tour de France organisers had actually planned it. And I think it must. When did that happen? When did, when was um, Napoleon's big return? His, his fifteen, March eighteen fifteen. Well, it wasn't the twenty fifth. No, it wasn't the twenty fifteen Tour de France. So, well, maybe it was. Probably was. Time flies, you know. We're getting old. I was commentating on anyway. But anyway, it was some sort of for years. You started commentating in twenty sixteen. I was reporting before then. Well, maybe you were pretending. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, for whatever reason, the Tour de France had decided that was the year to follow the route to Napoleon. Okay. Wow. And so I read up a little bit about it in the few hours I had before actually starting to commentate. It was unbelievable, wasn't it? It's crazy, though. Yeah. I do not know more than you know. We've just spent two hours looking at buckles and muskets. Yeah, muskets. I love them. Yeah. And and helmet bits that fit on the front of bearskin. Yeah. Bearskin front plates. Yeah. Bearskin front plates. We've been looking at um, man bags. Man bags. The original man bag is, of course, the cartridge box. Uh, which was carried by all soldiers uh, over their left shoulder so the cartridge box would sit on their right hip so they could easily access the cartridges from inside it. Incredibly ornate. Yeah, some of them were very ornate. Uh, cavalry officers would have have these little equivalents even though they because they would carry pistols so they would have a very small one but it would be very ornate and, and lots of gold trim and stuff like that to show how important they were. Muskets that shoot round corners? Yeah, that, or don't. Hence the way they're in a Bendy mus- musket. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did work them out. I'm not sure that's what they are. I think that might be some kind of... Uh, it was literally bendy. It was a bendy... No, I bendy that, but I think that was all the kind of the the butt of the musket. I think that what you had on there was like a sort of weird mortar so you could hold it around the corner and load it and fire it right. from standing around in safety. Right. But the actual part that fired was on the f- straight bit. Yeah. I did look a bit more carefully because I did laugh a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely, Rob, it's written insane how much you know. Like, you were just reeling off dates and names and what happened to these various generals and these marshals who all got ended up to a grisly end. And, like, some and yeah. yeah, some fellow in North Africa who said, I didn't want to live beyond 30, so he didn't. And no, no, that was General LaSalle. He died at Wagram okay. yeah, in, in Austria. I was listening. Yeah, he died in uh, 1809. But why? Uh, it's incredible. So I kind of like half jokingly said, I think you're one of the world's experts. And I actually don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> I genuinely, I, I genuinely think, I know, because yeah, you just don't, like, yeah, but a lot of other people are bags of armies of researchers who've done this work for them. You could, do, you could actually just sit down and write a book, or three, about Napoleon. Yeah, I could try. Off the top of your head. Yeah, but it would be a bit factually incorrect. Off the top of my head, there's bits that, you know, but um, there's a lot in there, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like people say I know a lot about nothing and nothing about a lot, so I, think, I don't know which one it is. How did you get into it? Oh, well, <laughs> I was very little, like not very old, like four or five or something like that. And um, my sister's boyfriend, uh, he came around, they were, I think he wanted to get me out of the way so they could snog. And he gave me a little, um, a little matchbox with some uh, toy soldiers in little tiny ones that he painted and gave them to me to keep me occupied while he was so off. To get you out of the room. Yeah, so he could get me out of the way while he was snogging my sister. So, yeah. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Fifty years later, yeah, standing outside the Marvelites. Yeah, yeah. So my sister's boyfriend at that time has a lot to answer for. Do you know what I take from all that? I take from all that that um, 
I thought I knew, but I know it with a much greater depth of kind of understanding now, just from that brief visit, is that Napoleon's presence in French life is just immeasurable and to this day. And that um, the, the, although this is the Army Museum, so, you know, a lot of what we've just seen is focuses on his, his military campaigns, around his sepulchre, the, the freezes around his sepulchre, the sepulchre, um, uh, are a kind of homage to his civil yeah. legacy. So, yeah. like, is is you know, kind of like laying down a French yeah, law. A and uh, between 1800 and 1804, before the wars all started again, he did a lot of the Code Napoleon. He reformed the banking system, the school system, um, the like public works, uh, the church. Um, we talked about that earlier on. Um, so he did loads of stuff, um, and the Code Napoleon outlasted him by a long time it's only the last 20 or 30 years or whatever that it's gone away completely but that yeah stuff he did was to rebuild France to make it a viable nation because it had had you know 10 years or whatever of revolution counter-revolution and revolution and counter-revolution just complete instability and the, the, the magic trick that he played was they you know he was made consul in 1800 yeah so yeah. 11 years after they got rid of the monarchy, yeah. he declares himself emperor and sits in, on a throne. In 1804, yeah. In 1803, he's yeah. literally dressed in ermine, sitting on a throne, going, yeah. suckers. Yeah, my people and my family are going to inherit this. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, he turned it all on its head. And you've got to remember that it's not just that, but 1793, he was a captain. He wasn't a captain. He was in charge of 100 men. Yeah. And 11 years later... He's emperor. Emperor all of France and right. Italy and so I'm going to suggest now we're going to get a beer yeah, and then we're going to go we're going to go to a beer. mad cafe that if it's interesting I'll report back on um, okay. hopefully if it's open um, and then we're going to and tomorrow yeah. we're going to we're going to link this back to cycling a little bit because yeah, I'm going to take you up the route of the final stage of the oh, Tour yeah. de France okay yeah, that would be great I was rubbish at cycling you know famously fell off all the time So we left Les Invalides after an amazing few hours with Rob guiding me through Napoleonic history and we went into the 15th arrondissement down to the old meatpacking quarters where the horse abattoirs used to be in the uh, in the 19th century and into the 20, 20th century as well before eventually they were um, demolished. And there is a cafe there that I wanted to take Rob to. Um, so unique and so extraordinary that I couldn't quite believe it existed and um, it does exist. We went to the Café Wolczak, named after Yannick Wolczak, who was a uh, Polish of Polish origins, a French um, boxer of the post-war years of from 1944, I think, till 1949. A brief career, became French champion, um, put Sugar Ray Robinson on the canvas at one point, um, but went on to lose the match. And uh, a European champion as well. He set up this this cafe, this bistro, which is still there. And um, it's extraordinary. You have to knock on the door. You can't just walk in. You have to knock on the door and wait for them to answer. They're very selective about who they let in. And all across, all on the walls, there are uh, memorabilia of all the famous people who have uh, attend, uh, been in this cafe. The family sold it a few years ago, the descendants. Um, but it's still very much kept in its original state. And uh, Georges Brasson, the uh, famous chansonnier of the 1950s, was a big patron of this bistro. And he even wrote a song about it called Le Bistro. Dans un coin pourri du pauvre Paris, sur une place, l'est un vieux bistro tenu par un gros dégueulasse. 
And his images everywhere on the walls as well, often in the company of his protege, Jacques Brel, who, of course, he went on to uh, persuade to leave Brussels and come to, to Paris to start his career. So Brasson was a big, uh, a, a big patron of this place. And... Um, yeah, it was incredible. When we were there, it was just me and Rob, and the only other people there was uh, a family celebrating Claude's 69th birthday. So he was there, his Russian wife, their son, uh, Sergei, his daughter, so the grandkids were there and some neighbours. And uh, they brought out a beautiful cake that we all um, got up and sung happy birthday to Claude, and it was just one of those memorable Parisian evenings. <laughs> And then we woke up uh, in our hotel and we made our way through the drizzle and the rain to a very, very windy uh, Arc de Triomphe that we climbed the 200 steps to the top, something I'd never done before. And the breath at the top, uh, sorry, the, the view at the top took my breath away. What happens is on the final stage is we're switching to look over towards La Défense and yeah. the outlines of the skyscrapers there and the hills in the distance past the past the Bois de Boulogne, etc. The race will often start out to the west or down to the south or up to the north west, 50, 60 kilometres away, yeah. and it will make its way to the river and it'll rattle along the river and at some point coming from whatever direction it'll hit the Champs Elysees uh -huh. and it'll do. And I've explained that those eight loops that it'll do. And, and and it's the um, the French red arrows, the oh, Patrouille yeah. de l'air, yeah. they will um, time their arrival, so when the peloton arrives, yeah. they will they will just come from the, what's that, the Rue de l'Armée, the Grand Armée, all the way over the Arc de Triomphe and down towards the Place de la Concorde at exactly the same time the peloton's coming up the other direction. That must be truly something. <laughs> it's nuts, it's nuts. Must be a bit distracting for the riders. Like, oh, look at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it sets the pulse racing, it's absolutely, yeah. 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 Wow. And, and, and of course, away to the north, you've got Montmartre. Montmartre, yeah. Which is where the Prussians and the Russians came in 1814. 1814. Yeah, and attacked Paris from the north. And Mortier and Marmont defended it over there uh, for the day. Uh, and then they made an agreement and withdrew south and through the through the city to the south yeah. and gave it up to the Allies. And that was really the end of Napoleon. And then in 1840, his ashes yeah. were brought back here in a ceremony, weren't they? Yeah, they like, were, yeah. Under the Arc de Triomphe. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, in yeah, a big procession. And a very large, uh, seeing that sarcophagus yesterday, a very large wagon with a very many horses. You can say that again. Go on, a say it again. A very large wagon with very many horses. <laughs> <sighs> Almost fainted after the finish, was in pure oxygen debt after about a K. Felt like I had asthma, even though I don't. I think I could hear my breathing from, I don't know, Birkenhead. But it's done. But I'm not having, I'm not having the timing. 17, 29 or something. The official timing was, but on my uh, obviously because it's a circuit on Strava, which will take as the official time because everything's on Strava. My average pace was 3:21 per k, which works out as a 16 minute 45 
so I really wanted to get a 16 minute and I was a bit disappointed when it was over 17 minutes because you know I was constantly doing I don't know 320 k's so I'm going to take the time of 16 minutes um, I won't be doing one of them for a very long time potentially another year you need at least 11 months to get over the pure pain of that. 